Welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology, which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Good evening, everybody. Um, It is another rainy evening uh, on the East Coast, and welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled. And uh, I'm going to give you a little story today, and I hope to, one, do it justice, and two, make it make sense to everybody. And um, those of you tuning in, I really encourage questions tonight. So um, I know there's a lot of them, and um, it's a topic that is pretty relevant to everybody. I'm going to talk about um, hormones and the hormone, what I call the hormone story. And really, I'm going to break down what changes in the body, what happens, um, what are the the pitfalls that start to happen. And, and I'm going to give you a couple of sample patients and break that down for you. So um, if you want to send me a, a Facebook question, you can go to um, Dr. Lori Gerber, um, or you can go onto Instagram and go to Dr. Lori Gerber as well, or just send it an email um, to info, I-N-F-O at my, M-Y-D-R-L-O-R-I.com. And um, I can check that on there as well. So I'll be kind of flipping back and forth and see if I, um, I'll hold the questions, the answers to the end, and I'll try to pop the answers into what we're talking about. So um, without kind of um, boring you guys, I want to try to make this a little bit interesting. So I'm going to give a couple cases of patients and we'll touch base on why these patients are different as we move along. So I think if any of them trigger in your brain, oh my gosh, that's me. Um, how many times does that happen where I'm listening to something? I'm like, wow, maybe I need that. Or that seems like it suits me or the, all those describe me. Then again, you can do an intake on my website. Um, there is a link for under wellness um, for a wellness intake or a wellness questionnaire. You can fill that out and then we can start kind of doing your workup. So um, if any of this rings true for you, um, and by the same token, I take emails all the time um, directing people in the right direction. Um, if they don't know if this is where they should end up, um, then we can help you, you know, maybe end up with us or maybe send you somewhere different. So the first thing I want to talk about is the young mother, small kids in her mid to late 30s. Um, really, you know, we think, oh, there shouldn't be anything wrong with you. You just had kids, you're running your life, day-to-day activities, and she complains of anxiety, fatigue, weight loss issues. Um, And honestly, after talking to her a bit more, we end up realizing that she has um, a decreased libido and decreased orgasm. And and that is what I would say my my peri-peri ladies, my ladies that are maybe super early, they don't really are, they're not in menopause, they might have some mild hormone changes, which we're going to talk about. And, um, you know, I think that that is really important to understand that early on in life, you can have hormone imbalances that can create these issues. And what we're going to talk about is the, what I call the estrogen and progesterone seesaw. And that seesaw is essentially a balancing act, right? So all your whole life, we're just trying to balance these two hormones and testosterone as well. And the highest, um, percentage of progesterone receptors are actually in the brain. So when we start talking about early, early changes, progesterone and testosterone are two of the hormones that go down the earliest. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what happens when, um, you know, progesterone goes down in, in this early 
or a young mother. She just had a baby. Her progesterone was really high. And then it starts to decline over time. And as that declines, or really even right after pregnancy, um, maybe contributing to some postpartum depression, the brain receptors aren't saturated with progesterone anymore. And progesterone is a kind of feel-good, well-being hormone. It makes you feel better, right? It's that calming hormone. Without that hormone and with decreasing levels of that hormone, you may not feel great. It can also create some you know, brain issues and anxiety is a big complaint. Everyone attributes it to new family, new babies, all these things. But in reality, um, decreasing progesterone slightly, especially after pregnancy, and decreasing testosterone, which I think we'll talk about a little bit, is the first hormone to go down. Um, you know, babies aren't the sole reason of decreased libido just because they're not sleeping or we're not getting our privacy. There's really a physiologic change in your mid to late 30s, maybe even some early 30s with testosterone going down. So we'll get back to that in a few minutes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about estrogen and the progesterone balance, and then we'll kind of move on to um, as the hormones decline with the next patient would present with. So um, progesterone, like I said, is responsible for staying asleep, brain fog if you don't have enough, anxiety, mood swings, um, even, you know, balancing out estrogen and estrogen can cause lots of issues with um, anxiety. I call it emotional, you know, where you feel kind of like you can't keep your emotions in check um, and it can cause belly fat, trouble losing weight with extra estrogen. So again, it's that seesaw effect, right? We want to say what's high and what's low. When that progesterone starts to decline, it gives us this, this uh, vision or this feeling of extra estrogen. And we call that estrogen dominance. And estrogen dominance over long periods of time can create what we call this um, belly fat or even a higher cancer um, risk factor. So what does estrogen do? Well, it actually makes your lining of your uterus thicker. So we can get heavier bleeding. We can get some uterine enlargement. Um, it actually is responsible for um, stimulating the sympathetic nervous system, which um, can help with keeping you alert. But in general, when it doesn't have enough progesterone, it can actually cause anxiety as well. So, you know, too much estrogen and not enough progesterone both can cause anxiety. Um, so I like to think of them on the seesaw because they're really not isolated in, in one way or another. All right. So why is progesterone so important to the brain? Well, there's GABA receptors on the brain that are what we call parasympathetic response um, stimulators. And they just chill you out. I mean, it really is the calming agent for the brain. And natural progesterone, and we're going to talk about some differences between synthetic and natural, but natural progesterone will actually stimulate that GABA receptor and counteract some of your estrogen, which we said is sympathetic, which kind of revs you up with this parasympathetic calming response. So if you have these two in, in unison or in synergy, then you should feel pretty even. Um, if you can't fall asleep, you can't stay asleep, you have the brain fog, the anxiety, the mood swings, maybe even some OCD tendencies, um, that kind of thing, then we're talking about some imbalances. And I think people tend to think about estrogen as being the primary culprit of these changes. And really most of it early on is testosterone, which I'll kind of bring up at the end, or progesterone. Um, so I call progesterone the brain hormone. It really is the kind of calming agent for the brain. 
So let's talk about the next female who is maybe a little bit more in a middle age. Their kids are in high school or college, can't lose weight, exhausted, no libido, wants it back and wants her husband to come in as well because now we're talking about both of them. And the biggest, what's the biggest difference is 10 to 15 years ago, um, she was fine with those symptoms, but now she can't sleep at all. And her brain is shot. She has, you know, brain fog like crazy. So again, that brain fog is that progesterone continuing to decline. So not only do you have some mood disturbance, maybe that anxiety that we talked about, but now the, the um, brain is what I call twitchy and maybe a little cloudy and all those receptors are not saturated with progesterone anymore. So you have all this extra estrogen because estrogen doesn't fall until you really start um, you know, losing periods or getting lighter periods, which is a little bit later, and that progesterone continues to go down on that downward slope. And progesterone is, again, the, I call it like the be all and end all hormone, but it really, we're going to talk about cancer risks and all those things. It really does not have any cancer risk. Very, we have a lot of talk out there about progestin, which is a synthetic progesterone in birth control or medroxyprogesterone. Again, we'll kind of get back to that because I just got a question on that as well. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about cancer risk, but progesterone, and we're going to talk bioidentical, meaning the same as your body's molecule, does not create an extra cancer risk um, in that regard. So bioidentical means that it's made from your body or sorry, it's made from your made to look like your body's molecule. So it's not extracted in a laboratory. So literally we make it to be identical to your body's molecule as opposed to a synthetic, which is manufactured and has N groups and all kinds of things that are different than our body's molecule. So for all you Penn State fans out there, I know we have a lot of them. It was actually discovered in the 1930s. So this has been around quite a long time by a Penn State professor, um, Russell Marker, who actually transformed... Um, a chemical from wild yams into natural progesterone. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is um, doctors have been using bioidentical compounds for a very, very long time. And finally, we're getting the data and the, um, I guess, the backing to be able to move this forward into into kind of more mainstream medicine. I think it's been missed for a lot of years. Um, the Bioidentical progesterone we use is made from yam. It used to be made from soybeans, um, but it's made from yam. And that yam um, bioidentical progesterone is usually taken as a capsule. Um, it can be done as a cream. We'll talk about the benefits and stuff, risks of that. But unlike natural progesterone, when we make it synthetically, it's not identical to our body's molecule. So what's the downsides? Well, synthetic progestin was made for contraception, right? It was made to stop your ovaries from ovulating because the half-life, which is the duration of how long something lasts in your body of natural progesterone is very short. So they can't use that for birth control. So they needed a very potent progestin that could actually stop the ovaries from ovulating. And birth control pills have synthetic progestin and synthetic estrogen. And these progestins are very, very strong and that little bit of chemical structure actually makes them, one, be able to be made by pharmaceutical companies so that it's actually profitable. We can't make things that are bioidentical or natural and make money off of it from a pharma company. 
It's a whole separate lecture or story. Um, but the synthetic compound of progestin itself, if you think about what it does, it actually cannot stimulate the brain receptor the same way that progesterone does. It doesn't actually fit. So it has no brain calming effect. And it actually doesn't balance out your cancer risk from a same perspective as progesterone does. By the same token, progesterone actually um, will decrease swelling. It'll actually decrease water retention. Well, the progestin, unfortunately, does not do that. So what happens is you're going to get all these other side effect profiles, including some um, water retention with a lot of the synthetics. So we'll kind of get back into that and bring it back in. But a lot of the negative results of progestin or birth control are because it, it hits diff different receptors or doesn't hit them at all. It creates swelling where progesterone will reduce swelling. And last but not least, it actually will shut off your natural progesterone production. So that kind of brings me to my next patient. Um, you know, when you give someone a synthetic hormone like a birth control pill, it's going to give you a little bit of more estrogen. It actually will, it's very similar to, similar to your body's estrogen. So it won't shut off your estrogen, but it will regulate it. But it does really shut down your progesterone with, and replaces it with progestin. And again, that brain receptor thing and a lot of the cancer protection just isn't there um, when we replace it. So it actually increases your cancer risk to go on the synthetics even birth control, and that data will come out, I'm, I'm thinking pretty shortly, there's a lot of studies going on on that right now. Um, but that to me is one of the biggest things to take out of this um, whole podcast. So let's kind of bring that into this next patient. So I have a female that hasn't had a period in like nine months, her brain fog is horrific. She can't sleep, hasn't slept in, a, in probably a year or two because her progesterone has been going down for so long. And she gets a little bit of hot flashes and night sweats here and there. Um, sorry, this one, let's actually, she gets a lot of hot flashes and night sweats and she can't control them. Her OBGYN put them on birth, her put her on birth control and it helped her hot flashes, but her mood swings are even worse and she's gaining weight. So this is a really common one. And actually it's very common with a younger um, patient base too that go on birth control. So let's, let's address a little bit of this. So a lot of it is the same as the first patient and second patient, but now she's getting hot flashes. Well, hot flashes are again, the big difference between estrogen and progesterone. So the bigger the difference, the more you get hot flashing. If your estrogen is still high, you're still going to get hot flashes. If I can bring your progesterone up to match a little bit better, then you're going to, they're going to go away. If I can bring your estrogen down, they're going to get better. So when you go on birth control, it's going to give her a more steady dose of estrogen and it's going to shut off her progesterone and replace it with a synthetic progestin. Okay. So we've helped her hot flashes a little bit, but now we've any little bit of progesterone that her body was already making, we've taken that away and we've replaced that with this synthetic hormone that is not hitting those GABA brain receptors the same way. So it doesn't have the calming effect. It doesn't have the mood evening effect and it shuts off any little bit of that that she had left. So maybe 10 years ago, she was able to tolerate birth control, no problem. I hear this all the time. And now when she's in her 40s and, you know, she's maybe almost menopausal, she went back on birth control 
and she can't tolerate it. Or after you have babies, you go back on birth control and you can't tolerate it. Your moods are all over the place. You can't sleep and you're gaining weight. So we address the moods. We address the brain. Why is she gaining weight? Well, and I just got a question on this as well. You're gaining weight because of two, two reasons. One, we talked about progesterone being that diuretic. It's an it's a anti-water hormone. It's going to actually help to reduce the water retention. And extra estrogen and less progesterone, progestin does not do the same thing. You're going to have a lot of water retention, and I call it the squishy-mushy effect. Um, two, it actually decrease or increases what we call binding globulin, and that actually will hold on to testosterone for dear life. So it makes it not usable. Testosterone is great for helping with weight loss. So we've cut off your progesterone and we've decreased your testosterone. Oh, and by the way, she says she has no libido. Who knows? It was probably there before she went on the pill and now it's even worse. So doctors are kind of famous for saying that birth control pills don't affect libido. And in theory, I understand where they're coming from. It's only estrogen and progesterone, which shouldn't, although it does, estrogen and progesterone do slightly affect it um, in lubrication. Um, but testosterone is changed when you get binding globulin, which is actually increased when you go on a pill, birth control pill. So by like a secondary byproduct, you decrease the free testosterone that's available. And that is why you get a lower libido when you go on birth control. Some people are much more susceptible at different ages in their life than others because their hormones are already declining or lower genetically, okay? So in this time of your life, what is extra estrogen doing? Well, it's probably leading to an irregular or heavier period. It's you're nervous, your progesterone levels are low, so you're, you know, you're not having good brain function. Um, so it's just getting worse. And at that time in your life, when your progesterone is dropping and your estrogen is high, you're actually, you're starting your highest cancer risk, okay? Why? Because it's basically this unopposed estrogen. When estrogen goes unopposed, it becomes um, what we call proliferative and it just makes cells divide and divide and divide. Whereas progesterone stops the division. It's actually the anti-proliferative hormone. So women that actually have um, a lot of extra estrogen over periods of time for a lot of reasons. Let's just say they went into menopause early or they started um, their period early, okay? And they had longer life, lifetime of extra estrogen or maybe their progesterone was very low for their whole life. Those are all higher risk for estrogen-sensitive cancers, so breast, ovarian, uterine, colon, okay? So, you know, if you put that into perspective and then you put the birth control pill out there, the longer you're on the pill and suppress your progesterone, if you already have a high estrogen level, then it definitely is increasing your risk long-term because we're shutting off your progesterone. It's increasing your risk of estrogen-sensitive cancers long-term. Okay. And so you're taking away your balance to that seesaw. And I think that seesaw is so important to understand. And so let's kind of go to this um, last female and, and then we'll summarize this, this story a little bit. So the last female hasn't had a period in three years. Okay. So at a year, you're done menopause. Well, technically speaking, you need 12 months of no period. 
still has some mild hot flashes, night sweats, but not that bad. She wouldn't have come in for those ordinarily. She cannot lose weight. Um, she has a middle pooch on her belly that she never had before. And now what really brought her in is she sees her skin aging, her face aging, and she's dry everywhere. Okay. And vaginally included. So this is kind of what I like to say is your menopausal or postmenopausal female who has really lost her testosterone early. Well, normal, but earlier on, then lost her progesterone. And now after about two years of going through these menopausal changes, she's finally lost her estrogen. And when estrogen finally declines, it, it tends to get a little easier to lose weight actually. So that pooch should start to get easier to go to get rid of, but that pooch came on because it is, um, your metabolism slows down when you have all this extra estrogen and you actually tend to store fat a little bit more. So progesterone kind of has a, a pro-metabolism effect. And without it, you don't, have as, you don't have that effect. So as that estrogen finally disappears, you're going to get a lot better um, results with weight loss. Um, that being said, when estrogen is gone, you see the signs of aging. So you have skin aging, texture of the skin, um, osteopenia, which is um, bone loss. You have osteoporosis, which is when it actually starts to you know, break down more. Um, you have a lot of the cardiovascular effects. So we know that um, estrogen is very anti-inflammatory at low doses, and it's actually um, estrogen and testosterone are great for maintaining bone density. So you see some cardiovascular um, changes from inflammatory and lipid panels. You can actually see some disorders like Alzheimer's, dementia, other kind of inflammatory disorders, and you will start to see other um, autoimmune and inflammatory conditions as well. So, you know, this, this lady that comes to me and her estrogen is now down, we're obviously, we're looking at some more longer term fixes so that we can keep her, um, her health maintenance goals intact. And progesterone is gone too, right? So, she has basically a higher risk of breast cancer as long as her estrogen was high and now it's down, but ovarian cysts, endometriosis, um, endometrial hyperplasia is when you have low progesterone for long periods of time and the estrogen is still high and then um, obviously increased um, miscarriage and delivery. So this female, the second female might say to me, man, I needed infertility drugs to get pregnant. And I tell her, oh, well, it makes sense that you know now you're having trouble sleeping um, or even after your babies, you're having trouble sleeping and you have anxiety because you had no progesterone to start with. And now it's declining and you still have a lot of estrogen, but your progesterone's not there to give you that protection, that brain protection. So, you know, estrogen is great when it's balanced. I think that's the key. And to understand too, that not all estrogens are created equal. And I think this is a story that is a little under discussed, especially, um, you know, with, with HRT and replacement therapy. Um, it was, we did HRT wrong for years and we created cancer and that, and that is, uh, it's, there's no doubt to that, but no one has ever really, um, talking about what we used and how we used it. And there's, there's many types of estrogen. And when we replace with bioidentical estrogen, we replace it as something called a biest, means two types of estrogen. Estradiol 
NS trial, and they're in what we call an 80 to, 80 to 20 mix. So let's break this down. E1, it ends in O-N-E. I always say it's one because it's O-N-E. It's the strongest estrogen. Um, it actually is the strongest in menopause. It becomes very dominant. It's 10 times more potent than um, regular estradiol. So it can drive a lot of those hot flashes during menopause. Um, but as estradiol declines and it's just estrone, we're going to talk about that, then it's really not as bad. And estrone is actually made in the fat. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a catch-22. The more fat you have, the more estrone you're going to make. It's not a great um, cascade. Estradiol, dies too is a mid-potency um, estrogen, and it's really strong mid in middle life and early on life. And when you go through menopause, it actually cut, it declines. But it is responsible for that vaginal lubrication and some libido, ovulation, and all that cardiac protection that I was talking about earlier. So when we replace, we don't replace with estrone anymore. It, decades ago, we did. We used a lot of estrone, very dominant, very potent estrogen, and we created proliferation and never gave progesterone as a balancing act, okay? Even, even as a synthetic hormone. So I like to put that out there because we, you know, estrogen itself um, may have done it because it was synthetic, but it was also not balanced out with any progesterone, okay? Estriol, which is trio, which is three, is a very weak estrogen. And it has the ability to actually convert into E2. So it's a great, um, or estradiol. So it's really good to use because it's very weak. It can convert into some of that E2 on its own in the body and it helps with dryness. So it's great for vaginal dryness, eyes, bladder, um, which actually helps with UTIs as well and urinary tract infections and bladder and uh, uterine infections because it, it actually helps to thicken the lining. So I call it the humidifier. So <laughs> when you think about these three hormones, we give 80% estriol, the weak one. We hope some of it converts into estradiol and we give 20% estradiol. So we're really not giving any estrone anymore. Um, and we're giving these in bioidentical formulations that are not synthetic at all. So I think that's a really important point. Um, when we talk about replacement. And I, I did get that question earlier about cancer risk. And the data does not suggest that 80-20 um, estriol estradiol or even um, estradiol pellets with progesterone, in, they do not increase or that we've not seen an increase in, in cancer risk. So I think that's really important to understand. So let's talk really quickly um, about Depo-Provera, because I think I missed this point. And Depo-Provera is a progestin birth control that's been popular over the years. And it's gotten a little bit of a bad rap because it well, actually it gives progesterone a bad rap because it's only progesterone as an injectable. And it's been linked to blood clots, fluid retention, acne, weight gain, depression, you name it. Um, but we're giving a synthetic high-dose progestin shutting off natural progesterone and basically giving the body this, what we would call like estrogen dominant. And I like to call it a pro um, clot state, right? We're making your, we're actually making your body very estrogenic and, and much more prone to clotting. So to me, most of your reaction is by shutting down your progestin and actually having this just extra estrogen load that's already there. 
which is why the we call it medroxyprogesterone acetate or Depo-Provera has been linked to all these issues. Again, it's not the same as bioidentical progesterone, okay, which is much weaker but cannot be used for birth control. So, all right, so I spent the, for about the first half hour talking about estrogen, progesterone, and females, literally ranging from 30 to probably 60s. Um, the question that I get a lot is, is this for life? Are we on this for life? And I would say the health benefits of bioidentical progesterone are huge. And I would say you're on something probably for life. Although when it does decline as you get older, so your needs get lower, you have a much um, smaller uh, metabolic requirement, right? So while the answer is yes, I think the answer is also for how long you want to maintain your quality of lifestyle is how long you stay on it. And we change that as you age. So that question just came in. I wanted to make sure I got that one answered because it fit in there. All right. So let's talk about men for a minute and then we'll go back. Actually, let's talk about testosterone. And testosterone, <laughs> I always say testosterone is funny. It's the, um, it's like a bad word in our, in our world and, and nobody ever talk about it. And men and women both need testosterone guys. It's not an isolated thing that men need testosterone and why it has been such a stigma and no one has checked testosterone levels in females for all these years. I do not know. Um, but I can tell you that women don't like to talk about testosterone, but men love it. And it's just like talking about sex or talking about libido or orgasm. It's the same to me. It's the same, uh, you know, what, um, dichotomy or it's the same um, misconception. Men think they can talk about it. Women think they can't. And, you know, we all need it. It's the mojo hormone. It's the hormone that makes you kind of get up and go. It's what you, it gives you that ability to work out. It helps you put on muscle mass. It's really important. So men make about eight to 10 milligrams of testosterone a day. Women make about one to two milligrams of testosterone a day. So let's just say one in 10. So women have about one-tenth the amount of testosterone that men, but it does not mean that it's not significant. So when we talk about testosterone, we can go back to that very first patient that was complaining. And she was a young mother with small kids. And a lot of the time, their progesterone might just be starting to decline, but the biggest problem is usually low testosterone. That testosterone goes down pretty quickly in females, and it's much goes down much more quickly in females than it does in men. And there's, there's lots, a little bit of theory behind that, but the biggest reason why is that testosterone is produced one quarter in the adrenal glands, one quarter in the ovaries, and one quarter in what we call peripheral tissues, um, such as fat. And some women just don't metabolize testosterone very well via their adrenal pathway. So they get le levels that are lower earlier in life. So I tend to find these to be women that are what we were talking about last week, which is adrenal insufficiency, cortisols being low, high stress, athletes. I see this a lot that athletes have burned out their adrenal, um, their adrenal contribution. So now you're stuck with your basically your peripheral and your, and your testicular and ovarian um, replacement. So when that happens, the testosterone goes down young and it's dismissed, right? Most people say, oh, you're tired because you have babies or, oh, it's family life or, 
you know, this is normal aging process. Well, yes, it is, but I don't see a reason why we shouldn't treat it. And when we talk about bioidentical testosterone, it is the same molecule as your body. It's made from yams and it, it is replaced really easily. Um, so with what does it do for a woman to not have testosterone? Like in that first patient, low libido. Um, maybe a little bit difficulty with orgasm. I, I joke that it's not just because you have children. Um, muscle weakness. I have a lot of athletes that come to me that say, "My, I'm lifting and all of a sudden I can't make gains. Or my muscle fatigue and um, soreness is extending out way longer than it should, like three to four days. A lot of that is testosterone lows, right? Because you're not able to get the water drawn into the muscle and have the testosterone to actually build muscle mass. Um, that is common in my athletes that have burned it out, like I talked about. Um, my endurance athletes or maybe my adrenal fatigue, my athletes that are so burnt out that they really don't have anything left because guess where you make your testosterone from, guys? It's cholesterol and cortisol. Um, cholesterol makes cortisol and then cortisol makes your sex hormones. So if you are not right in that whole axis, then it's really tough to make your hormones regularly. So um, sometimes you have to go back to basics and start fixing that axis, fixing the cortisol levels and the adrenal levels and sleep and sugar response and all those things. So um, muscle weakness, let's talk about lubrication, um, arousal, we talked about orgasm, um, energy levels, and brain clarity are big ones. So difficulty losing weight because you can't put on muscle mass, inability to put on, um, sorry, inability to put on muscle mass, difficulty losing weight, and night sweats. That's what I missed. Night sweats is a huge one. Um, men tend to complain about it more than women, but when you have night sweats, it's almost always, especially if it's consistent, it's almost always low T or low testosterone. Um, mental clarity to me, progesterone and testosterone compete on this level because testosterone is a great, um, like I said, the mojo, the kind of, I'm going to get up and get things done hormone. So it tends to help with clarity a lot. I find that testosterone in myself helps mental, mental clarity a ton and I'm not on progesterone. So, um, it does, it does wonders for me. So I, encourage you to think about these things when you're kind of aging or even when you're just going about your day. Um, so let's talk about men for a second. Let's talk about a man that comes in complaining of fatigue, joint pains, and exercise intolerance. Doesn't complain about erectile dysfunction, doesn't complain about low libido, just says that he doesn't feel right. He feels like he's getting old, okay? This is probably where we should catch most men. Unfortunately, we don't catch them until they come in complaining of fatigue, joint pains, exercise intolerance, and they don't want to do the things they used to do that they used to like to do. They have a low libido, maybe some erectile dysfunction. And oh yeah, my doctor put me on a medicine for high cholesterol about three months ago. Um, and I just feel terrible and needed to come. My wife finally convinced me to come see you. Maybe it's the lady from... Um, one of our previous examples, right? So I feel like men are hesitant to talk about it when it becomes a libido issue. The libido issue is very late in low T. doesn't really happen until testosterone's below about 300. So 
testosterone for men should be 800 to 1100 approximately. Women, since there's no normals, it's about, let's say 60 to 80 or 80 to 200, depending on how we're treating you. So if a man is complaining and his levels are 700 or even 600, generally speaking, it's joint pains, can't get out of bed, they're tired and exercise intolerance. And they start having metabolic changes, meaning maybe their insulin isn't working really well. Maybe their thyroid isn't working as good as it used to. Maybe they're putting on weight um, that, or sometimes even night sweats. But the key is when you start to decline with testosterone, specifically in men, you start having metabolic changes in your insulin, your thyroid. Um, we call it you know, metabolic syndrome, which is you know, truncal obesity or obesity in the belly. Um, and they usually will complain of some um, joint pains and inflammation. So that can be fixed pretty easily. At that point, usually we can do a trochee or a lozenger. Um, some guys like the pellets early on, but they are all ways to get that level back up into a, about 800 to 1100 so they don't feel terrible. When they come in at 400 or 300, it's a pretty late sign. And that tells me their body is not making much anymore. They can't... Um, usually the trochee is not sufficient to get them up to where they need to be. Every once in a while, I'll get someone that is okay with sitting around 600. Um, and that's about how high we can get with the trochee. But we will get their libido better. We will get all of their stuff better with a little bit of testosterone replacement. We just got to get them to talk about it. So I think that's that's the key is men don't want to talk about it at the late in the late stages. Women are willing to talk about it after we, we tell them it's important. But men are usually only willing to talk about it early on. So that's generally why wives bring their men in after they're already in menopause and their men are finally having issues with libido. They don't think about it earlier on with the fatigue and joint pains. Um, joint pains are a big one. Do not underestimate the power of testosterone as an anti-inflammatory. It's a steroid, guys. And steroid hormones in general are great anti-inflammatories. So not to say you're taking testosterone to kind of like bulk up and get beefy and maybe take all the inflammation out of your body. But if you're getting multiple joint complaints, multiple injuries, you know, this knee hurts and that knee hurts or both knees and both hips, a lot of the time it's hormonal. Um, and that can go for men or women. So, you know, to me, finding it in the earlier stages is more important than finding it um, in the later stages because we can, we can, alleviate a lot of the inflammatory damage that might be caused and the metabolic damage that might be caused by prolonged low testosterone. So let's um, talk about his cholesterol medicine briefly. So I actually find this to be, I was a family practitioner initially, right? So when I first came out, you know, you had a cholesterol that was over the 200, you're, you're on cholesterol medicine and it didn't matter. Um, kind of how old you were, what your status, you know, was in life, except if you were a female of childbearing age. So when I look at it now from a very different perspective, and I look at the, what I call the spider web of hormones, cholesterol is the precursor to all of your hormones. So when we decrease cholesterol in a guy who maybe had a testosterone of, let's just say he was at 600 or 500, and on all the lab tests, if, you're not, if I'm not analyzing it, it's going to say that's normal, by the way, okay? Um, their threshold is actually 400. But 
let's just say he was normal, quote unquote, and then you put him on cholesterol medicine. Well, now we've decreased his cholesterol. Let's just say we've decreased it by 40 points, okay? What happens when we decrease the cholesterol in the sex hormone pathway? We've now taken away the, the bowl of cholesterol that he's supposed to make his sex hormones from. And if he's, let's just say he's type A and he is an executive and he, he's a CEO and he's going, 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 or maybe he's an, a shift worker. Well, now you have no cholesterol and no cortisol and really no way to make your hormones. So I actually, guys don't think about this because it takes a while for it to happen and they don't attribute it to cholesterol medications. But, and this is, I mean, people are going to controversy me all over the place. They're going to not love this comment, but if you go on a cholesterol medicine and we lower the amount of cholesterol in your body, the downstream effect is hormone changes. Even if we're not talking about sex hormones, if we're talking about, um, well, not talking about sex hormones, if we're talking about cortisol levels, it can definitely change those as well. So I think that we need to address the way we handle cholesterol and cortisol levels and make sure that they're I'm not saying they don't necessarily have to be on cholesterol medicine, but if we get critically low testosterone levels and the guy only has a cholesterol that's slightly above 200, putting him on testosterone and getting the weight loss and the eating habits better are far going to outweigh um, anything that that cholesterol medicine is going to do for him long term. So, you know, and, and actually testosterone does lower LDL, um, which is the bad cholesterol, it will actually lower a little bit of the good cholesterol as well, the HDL. But again, when we talk about risk to benefit ratio, if you can get that belly fat gone, if you can have the energy to work out, if the inflammation is taken down, then the benefit is huge. And we know that testosterone um, helps with decreasing inflammation, but we also know that it's a, it decreases cardiac risk factors. So again, we're talking about kind of taking down the greater inflammatory effect. And I just got a question here, which I was trying to read. So I'm going to bring, I'm going to pop it in here. So it's, does testosterone replacement cause testicular cancer or cancer in general? So let's talk about testosterone and cancer for a second. We've talked about estrogen and progesterone. Let's talk about testosterone. We have about, I don't know, 12 minutes or so. So let's, let's bring that up. So testosterone studies are all done on synthetic testosterone, okay? Injectable, high-dose synthetic testosterone. So you're giving like 200 milligrams, 100 milligrams, all at once. And you're letting it sit in the muscle. So you're getting conversion. We talked about those accessory tissues. They love to convert. So they take testosterone and actually they can make it into estrogen, Okay, especially fat. So the more fat you have, the more testosterone you convert to estrogen. Now, you give a high dose of testosterone that your body doesn't know what to do with, that will convert back to estrogen as well. So again, we're talking about this large bolus dose, it's synthetic, and it has the chance of conversion back to estrogen. So that is one way that synthetic testosterone injections can create what we would call hormonal cancers, okay? Two, when you give testosterone of any kind, it will actually increase what's called DHT, which is a precursor hormone. It's really, um, it's responsible for prostate stimulation and hair loss, 
DHT receptors on the prostate when you haven't had testosterone for a long time, mostly for guys who were under like 400 or 300. When you give that testosterone back and they get a little bit of extra DHT, it will stimulate the DHT receptors. So you can get some prostate enlargement, which is very common with testosterone replacement. However, if there was an aggressive prostate cancer already there, okay, meaning the cells were pre-existing and it was sitting there, it will stimulate those cells that would have grown anyway to grow, okay? So when we replace testosterone in a male that's lower than 400, in the first six to eight weeks, we recheck a PSA and testosterone levels to make sure we're not getting this crazy excessive stimulation and that PSA isn't jumping up and we're not finding a prostate cancer that was there, okay? The cancer was there. All you did was make it show itself, okay? And it's unlike the slow-growing prostate cancers that would have just sat there until probably the person passed away, right? There, there are, there's a myriad of types of prostate cancer and aggressive and non-aggressive, it's, it's really important to distinguish between the two. The aggressive one, it was just found earlier, okay? And actually, it might even do the patient a service, to be honest, um, because you found it and you were able to find it. You didn't create it, okay? And I think that's a really important point. Um, testosterone will increase some water retention in males and females. It's not a ton in females. In males, it can bump your um, blood pressure a little bit. So cardiovascularly, you will have some cardiologists that, you know, want to make sure that you're not bumping your pressures too much, um, especially if you have problems with your ejection fraction, getting the heart to squeeze, um, or having blood pressure issues, a little bit of what we call systolic or diastolic hypertension. And uh, for the most part, if it's kept, the levels are kept reasonable and you're not taking it um, like our, like steroid abusers would then you're going to be okay. Um, and we can talk about that if, if that's something that interests you. But I think testosterone um, in general gets a bad rap. It's one of those hormones that is, it's a, it's a great hormone um, and men and women both need it. So, and we talked about symptoms of deficiency, but I just got another question. So I'm going to reiterate that a little bit. Low testosterone, decreased libido, decreased um, arousal, muscle weakness, maybe not making gains in the gym with for active patients um, or not being able to put on muscle mass, lubrication, um, vaginally, arousal response, um, energy levels. It definitely helps with energy levels. So decreased energy levels um, and night sweats if you don't have it and mental clarity if you don't have enough of it. So those are the big ones. And I know they overlap a lot of the other hormones. So my, my, key point is when we are looking at these, we have to talk about timeline of symptoms. How did it progress? Which is why I think those patients in the beginning really make sense, right? At first, you're just a little tired. Maybe you have a little bit of um, brain fog. You don't feel so great. Um, and like I said, after talking, you know, you might not have a libido, but that had to be drawn out of you. Then you can't sleep. It's the insomnia, um, you know, and you want your libido back and your brain is getting mushy. And then all of a sudden you're getting these massive hot flashes. Maybe the night sweats start um, and the mood is just, you know, can't be controlled. After a long period of time, we get the dryness. That's kind of the later sign. And by the same token, men, the later signs that they get is that libido um, and erectile dysfunction decrease. I think the first sign for guys that they're not doing well with testosterone is, you know, 
I don't really want to go to the gym today. I don't want to go out with the guys and go golfing. Um, I don't want to go work on the car if that's your thing because they their testosterone is linked directly to their pleasure center, whereas it's not the same for females necessarily. So when they stop wanting to do the things that they like to do, that's an early sign of testosterone decrease. And, you know, falling asleep on the couch, you know, we all know that one, right? You know, that that fatigue early, early in the night or early in the um, late afternoon, that's a sign as well. So I think if we start catching this stuff earlier, we're really going to be better off long term. And we talk about inflammation and, and I just got a question about inflammation and is, would fixing hormones decrease inflammation? The answer is no, not by itself. And yes, it can help. But I like to look at these in the bigger picture, right? The picture of how much, um, what other things are going on, right? Are they having gut issues? Are we having adrenal issues? Are you having vitamin deficiencies? Is your stomach not working correctly? Because all of the, did you go on cholesterol medicine? All of these things are linked to how you're going to respond to hormone therapy, right? It's just not an isolated um, treatment therapy. And I used to, early on, um, I used to treat hormones isolated, right? We would just say, oh, you have a hormone deficiency. We're going to, we're going to treat that. And I think what I've realized over time is those pyramids that I love to talk about um, are so important because the gut immune brain, well, your immune system and your brain can do the same thing. Uh, you know, that, that link can do the same thing as progesterone and extra estrogen. So where do we draw the line? And then if you're not absorbing your nutrients, are we making enough hormone? So there's all different ways to kind of, um, to treat you, but I think mixing them, looking at all the triangles is the most important way to do it. Um, all right, another question with our last couple minutes. Let's see. What tests do you do? Well, how do you know if your hormones are off? Well, we kind of talked about this, but we, the next question is what tests do you do? And I think um, we, I used to do saliva and I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with saliva. I still like it. Um, it's just expensive. So I try to use insurance if we can to do some blood testing. Um, we can do finger sticks as well, which has been really nice with COVID. We send it to your doorstep. You prick your finger, you send it out. We get a great cortisol curve. We get your, um, we get your hormones, everything. So I love that too. Um, but we go to all your traditional labs if we can. I also have a lab that I work with self-pay. Actually, I work with all of them self-pay so we can do that as well. So if you don't have insurance, we can make it work. If you have insurance, um, we try to use that or we can send it to your house. Um, okay. So the next question is costs. Okay. So that's a tricky question because it depends on what you need, right? Hormones are pretty reasonable. Bioidentical hormones range anywhere from about 60 to $80 a month, give or take, um, per hormone. We can combine hormones after a while. Um, meaning we can kind of put multiples things in one trochee or lozenger. Um, pellets um, are about $400 for a pellet and they go under the skin and they last about four to six months depending on what we're using um, and they slow release over time. We have some injectables that you can get as well and they like testosterone and they run about, um, let's just say about 150 for um, 10 mLs which lasts about 10 weeks give or take. So we're not talking about huge investments in, in money. Um, it's a little bit of investment in time because it does take some time to kind of get your dosing right and all that stuff. So I think that what you're going to find is it's not, the cost is not prohibitive for most people. 
and it will, if you give yourself a couple months trial, I think you'll find that it's amazing. I actually had a patient tonight and I'm going to kind of close with her story who had cervical cancer. Um, oh gosh, I guess it was about seven, eight, maybe almost 10 years ago now. And no one would treat her with hormones and she was miserable. Her moods were all over the place. She couldn't sleep. And she was dry as heck and she was looking for help. And, you know, they, nobody would touch her. So we, we talked about the risks. We talked with her oncologist and we actually spoke today and she's been doing HRT, bioidentical HRT for about three years. And she, between that and getting her gut in order, she has been a new person. She can have sex. She has a libido. She's not dry. She has, you know, her mood swings are stable. Um, and this is a person that has eight children. So, you know, if you can have stable moods with eight kids, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Um, so, you know, I think that we we look at people in such isolated packages that sometimes we just really need to look at quality of life. And she went through heck to get to the space that she is now. And for her to be able to enjoy the quality of life that she wants and be safe about it is really important. And we use the tiniest amount of estriol, which is that weak estrogen, to help her. Um, and it's it's been a miracle worker. And we know estriol does not incite um, carcinogenic cells. So with the last two minutes that I have, guys, I'm going to kind of say, tell you that what I think you should do is if you're having mood swings, log them. If you're having symptoms, log them. When you log them, you can look at timelines and you can actually rank them. So zero to five. And that's how my intake works. It's five is the worst. Zero is nothing. And we track it over time. And if you're not getting better on the therapies that we're using, then it's not right for you, right? Um, but I will say the majority of people that do this stuff um, and that read on it and understand it will realize that traditional medicine misses the mark with hormone therapy. And unfortunately, we did it the wrong way. Um, and we probably basically, you know, cut off our nose to spite our face, right? We, we, we shot ourselves in the foot, if you will. So now people don't really think it's a reasonable way to, to treat themselves. Um, so you can go online. You can go to mydrlori.com, M-Y-D-R-L-O-R-I.com, um, or email me, like I said, at info at mydrlori.com. And just let's get your symptoms. Let's figure out what's going on. Are you not sleeping? And let's just make it, let's make it better. There's no reason we can't have a better quality of life. Um, especially living in close quarters during COVID um, than what we have right now. So again, um, if you have any questions, I'm here for you. And and I apologize, it is a change from what was listed. So I'm going to change that on um, our website as well. And I'm going to post um, this article that I wrote on these hormones on my website. So you can find it there at mydrlori.com. And thank you very much, guys, and have a great evening. Thank you for tuning in to Anti-Aging Unraveled. Be sure to join Dr. Lori Gerber again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week and keep you aging gracefully.